Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Welcome to the second week of Advent and the second week of our series called Her Story, where we're doing our best to elevate the stories of women whose lives are incredible witness to Christ and to Christianity, and whose work has helped to move the gospel forward in their own time. Uh, during this series that will bring us not only through Advent, but, but well past Advent as well, we're looking at the stories of women, uh, both in the scriptures and more contemporary women as well, uh, which is what we'll do today. Uh, so let's turn our attention in uh, once again and learn from her story. On a hot summer night in 1991, Rachel was awake, itching. Her eczema had flared up so badly that she couldn't sleep. And the urge to itch so irresistible uh, that she itched to the point where she was bleeding on her sheets. About every hour, she would call for her mom or her dad to come in and to offer her help, which they did, taking shifts, uh, to rub lotion on her skin and to give her a new pair of socks to put on her hands so that the itching uh, didn't irritate the eczema so violently. Now, one time uh, when her father was making his way out of the room, Rachel got the courage to ask her dad, why would God allow this to happen to me? And why doesn't he do uh, anything about it? Or why doesn't, go, why doesn't it go away? Her dad, a pastor and religion teacher, with, had multiple degrees in theology, replied to her with tears in his eyes, I don't know, but I do know that God loves you. Now that non-answer was initially frustrating, even scary for Rachel. How could her dad, who had spent his life studying theology and the Bible, not know the answer to her simple question. So she lay in bed scratching, crying and praying. Some 20 years after that incident, Rachel came to see that as one of the most important moments of her life and that her dad's response was actually a great gift to her. She learned in that moment that it's okay to ask questions about God and that God's love is unshakable. You know, there's an interesting story in Genesis chapter 32 uh, that I want to read to us uh, that I think will be really helpful uh, for us today. Genesis chapter 32, beginning with verse 22, says this, that same night he, that is Jacob, uh, he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Now Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he uh, did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, well, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven or struggled with God and with humans, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you have asked my name? 
And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, uh, meaning, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, Jacob, who uh, is a central character in our story, uh, is the son of Isaac and Rebekah and the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. He's a key figure in the Old Testament history and comes to be the patriarch of what we know as the Israelites. And in this peculiar story, Jacob finds himself wrestling with what is at first called a man, but is later to reveal to be God himself. Now, as the story is told, Jacob wrestles with God all night until it ends in a bit of a tie. Jacob refuses to let go until blessed, while the man, or God, is, uh, is unable to overcome Jacob, even if he does leave Jacob injured. And because of Jacob's tenacity, he is renamed Israel, which the text tells us means wrestles with God. Now, Jacob goes on to have 12 sons who become leaders of their own family lines and eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the name of God's covenant people in the Old Testament is Israel, which means wrestles with God. I don't want us to gloss over this or to miss this, because names, as significant as they are in our own culture and how they help form our own identity, were even more so in ancient culture. Uh, and so names were so significant to the formation of identity and to the sense of community. And the namesake of God's covenant people is that they wrestled with God in the same way that their forefather had. So to have an Israelite faith uh, did not mean to be certain about all of your beliefs or the ways that you're thinking about God. It meant to wrestle honestly with those beliefs. And we actually see this throughout the uh, biblical narrative, particularly in the Old Testament. The prophet Habakkuk wrestled with the character of God when he accused God of treating the wicked better than the righteous. Jeremiah wrestled with the actions of God when he charged God with torturing his very own people. Job got so fed up with his pain that he chastised God. And God, while not agreeing with the conclusions that Job had come to, commends Job's honesty. In fact, Job's honesty before God is portrayed as a form of faithfulness to God. The Psalms also reflect this kind of Israelite faithfulness. Uh, this collection of hymns and poems raises questions, expresses doubts, even uh, raises accusations against God, and yet are considered faithful signs of engagement with God even to this day, for us. And so what it means to have an Israelite faith is to wrestle honestly with God. But somewhere along the line, faith went from that honest wrestling to psychological certainty of doctrinal belief. Somewhere along the line, our songs went from the honest engagement with God that we have in the book of Psalms to only songs of praise filled with certainty, sometimes even pretending that everything is okay when it's not. 
Now, by the time that you get to the modern evangelical tradition of faith, doubt was in many circles seen as sin and questions seen as a lack of faith. But that didn't mean that those in the evangelical tradition didn't have questions. It only meant that they weren't allowed to ask them. And it didn't mean that those in the evangelical tradition didn't have doubts. It only meant that in many circles they weren't allowed to express them. And it was in this kind of church culture that Rachel Held Evans dared to ask questions publicly. In 2007, she started a blog where she started to ask questions, share doubts, and share her reflections about her changing beliefs about who God is. Well, as it turns out, before social media algorithms could suggest her writing to thousands of would-be readers, Rachel found an audience of uncertain believers, those who themselves were asking questions but didn't have a safe place to do so, those themselves who had doubts but didn't know where to share them or express them. You see, the answer that her dad gave her that night in 1991 gave her permission to ask questions about who God is. And as it turns out, questions and doubts defined much of Rachel's life. She exemplified, though, an Israelite faith that just like her ancient brothers and sisters, her questions were actually signs of faithfulness to God. And that's so important, and what a witness that I think we can learn from when we think about Rachel's life, that questions and doubts are not sins or, or uh, meant to demonstrate a lack of faith, but are actually faithful engagement with God. See, her questions meant that she took God seriously, and her doubts meant that she was genuine in her faith, no matter how uncertain she might be. Rachel was once asked, why are you a Christian? She replied, quote, I'm a Christian because at the end of the day, the story of Jesus is the story that I'm willing to risk being wrong about, end quote. You know, for all the things that Rachel was uncertain about, her writing makes clear that she was confident in one thing, the thing that her dad had taught her so long ago. She was confident in the great love of God. You see, doctrine could be questioned or examined, but that didn't ever change God's character. For her, healthy doubt meant asking honest questions about the things that we believe about God, while unhealthy doubt was doubting and questioning God himself. And for her, that was a really important distinction, uh, that we could be confident in the love of God and because of that great love, be freed and free others to ask questions and express doubts about the things that we believed about God. And so Rachel taught us that we can stand securely in God's love while also questioning certain beliefs without it being a threat to our overall faith. Rachel's honesty about doubt, questions, and the beauty of God's love has in fact inspired millions. Outcasts have been comforted. Doubters have been made to feel less alone. And lifelong Christians have been given permission to ask questions about the faith that they have always held. You know, we often think, particularly when we grow up in a religious context, 
that we have to have all the answers figured out. That there's a certain set of questions and then to answer those questions, there's a certain set of platitudes and answers that, are, that nicely address those questions. We, we come to believe, falsely believe, that when God is central in our lives, that we can't ask questions about God, but must simply accept the very first things we heard about who God is. But this is not the case. You see, what Rachel taught us is that when God is the center of our lives, we can take a look around, we can explore, and we can learn, all while grounded in the reality that God's love is unrelenting and endless, and His grace is wide. I'd like to read uh, some of her writing to you. Uh, It's a rather lengthy excerpt from her book uh, called Faith Unraveled. Um, How a Girl Who Knew All the Answers Learned to Ask Questions. And I would just invite you to to listen carefully uh, as I read a sample of her writing. It says this, I used to think that the measure of true faith is certainty. Doubt, ambiguity, nuance, uncertainty, these represented a lack of conviction, a dangerous weakness in the armor of the Christian soldier who should always be ready to have an answer. With the best of intentions, the generation before mine worked diligently to prepare their children to make an intellectual case for Christianity. We were constantly reminded of the superiority of our own worldview and the shortcomings of all the others. We learned that as Christians, we alone had access to absolute truth and could therefore win any argument. The appropriate Bible verses were picked out for us. The opposing opposing positions were neatly summarized for us and the best responses articulated so that we wouldn't have to struggle through 2,000 years of theological deliberation and debate, but we could get right to the bottom line on the important stuff like the deity of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, the role and interpretation of Scripture, and the fundamentals of Christianity. As a result, though, many of us entered the world with both an unparalleled level of conviction and a crippling lack of curiosity. So ready with answers, we didn't know what the questions were anymore. So prepared to defend the faith, we missed the thrill of discovering it for ourselves. So convinced we had God right, it never occurred to us that we might be wrong. In short, we never learned how to doubt. Doubt is a difficult animal to master because it requires that we learn the difference between doubting God and doubting what we believe about God. The former has the potential to destroy faith, while the latter has the power to enrich and refine it. The former is a vice, while the latter is a virtue. Where would we be if the Apostle Peter had not doubted the necessity of food laws, or Martin Luther had not doubted the notion that salvation can be purchased? What if Galileo had simply accepted the church-instituted cosmology uh, paradigms or William Wilberforce the condition of slavery? We do an injustice to the intricacies and shadings of Christian history when we gloss over the struggles, when we read Paul's epistles or St. Augustine's confessions, without acknowledging the difficult questions that these believers asked and the agony with which they often asked them. 
And so I would argue that healthy doubt, question, questioning one's beliefs, is perhaps the best defense against an unhealthy doubt, which is questioning God. When we know how to make the distinction between our ideas about God and God himself, our faith remains safe when one of those ideas is seriously challenged. So what my generation is learning the hard way is that faith is not about defending conquered ground, but about discovering new territory. Faith isn't about being right or settling down or refusing to change. Rather, faith is a journey and every generation contributes its own sketches to the map. Now I've got miles and miles to go on this journey, but I think that I see Jesus up ahead. How beautifully she articulates for us that faith is not certainty, but faith is walking in a journey, being willing to discover the beauty and the mystery of who God is. Rachel taught us so much. But in May of 2019, Rachel died from swelling in her brain due to complications from an infection. She was just 37 years old. Her last blog post was published on Ash Wednesday, 2019, a day on the Christian calendar when Christians repent of sin and recognize our mortality. This is what she wrote. Quote, it strikes me today that the liturgy of Ash Wednesday teaches something that nearly everyone can agree on. That whether you are part of a church or not, whether you believe today or you doubt, whether you are a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic, you know this simple truth deep in your bones. Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Death is a part of life. My prayer for you this season is that you can take time to celebrate that reality, to grieve that reality, and that you will know that you are not alone." End quote. You are not alone. That's good encouragement for us, for all of us. And in this Advent season, as we wrestle with hope, as we long for peace, I want you to know that you are not alone in that struggle. That you are not alone in your questions. You are not alone in your uncertainties. But you are anchored by the love of God and the presence of community. And perhaps the greatest evidence that you are not alone is that God would become flesh in the person of Jesus. Thanks be to God.